But we're on the home stretch of our time in the Psalms, our summer in the Psalms, which is good um, because it, it's showing us that, hey, man, we're, we're, we're moving, we're, we're progressing, we're growing. It's also a little sad because if we said it's the summer of Psalms, that means that so- summer is almost over. And so kids, got bad news, summer's almost over. Parents, that might be good. It could be either way for you. Uh, could be good news, could be bad news. But I pray that it's good news for all of us, that, or bad, bad news that we're sad, that like we're moving out of that time together, but good news that we're growing. Like for some of us, it's going to be a, 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 a new job, a new place, uh, a new place to live. For some of us, it's going to be um, a new school. For some of us, it's just going to be a new grade. But like this constant growth and maturity is good. And really, what we're begging God to do is to grow us in himself to mature us in our understanding of who he is, which is one of the reasons that we're spending this time in the Psalms. The Psalms are given to us as a gift to, to be able to, re, to relay our hearts to our God. And the beauty is he's written these things down for us because he knows our hearts. We have a God who knows us intimately, a God who has formed us, a God who has given us voice and song, some of it on key, some of it not, and that's okay, but we still sing it with joy. And so this morning, we just want to praise our Lord. And we praise Him through Psalm 113. I'm excited. Um, some of it, some of the selection for the Psalms has been um, a little haphazard. And you're like, man, we were, we were all over the place. We went to the front, we went to the back, and we've gone all over. And really, that's by design. Our hope is that we, each summer, would be able to get a little bit of a feel for the, the different types of Psalms the different ways that they're written, the different ways that they speak to our heart, the different ways that they've celebrated God's redemption and salvation in the life of his people. So to be honest, I'm not as familiar with the Psalms as I would like to be. Like when I go and I look at the commentators and they use some words or some stylistic points, I'm just like, what are you talking about? And then I have to go and look up. So so it's taken a lot to get the little bit that I'm able to give to you. But God has been gracious and kind to us in the Psalms. And today we're in Psalm 113. And in Psalm 113, there's there's a simple reality that the psalmist, and we don't know exactly who the psalmist is. It's not given to us like it is in some psalms. But the psalmist is trying to give us the reality that we should praise the Lord. It begins and it ends with this call to praise the Lord. So before they give us any circumstances of why we should praise the Lord, there's a call in each of those who are created by God to praise our Creator. So Psalm 113 is called, one, it's one of the Hallel Psalms. H-A-L-L-E-L. Hallel means praise. And so throughout the Psalms, we, we mentioned that there's a couple different books, right? There's different portions that kind of group together. Well, this is actually in a couple different portions. It's the third of these Hallel Psalms that are, are made up of 111, 112, 113, each of those begins with praise the Lord. It's also the first in a group of 113 through 118 that really tell the story of redemption of God's people from the Exodus all the way into the Promised Land. And so you, they would sing these during the Passover feasts. And these would guide their hearts to remember the joy of their salvation, what God has done to redeem and save a people for himself. And so Psalm 113 has uh, 
some strategy in its placement. We believe that God used even the people that would order the psalms and collect them and put them together for us, that God was sovereign over that. And so we see it and we rejoice in this call to praise. There's a couple uh, quotes that might help us to situate ourselves in Psalm 113. Jeffrey Grogan says this, This is both the last of a trio starting praise the Lord, hallelujah, and also the first in the Egyptian hallel. It is an exquisite and quite complex piece of Hebrew poetry, presenting a theology of wonder which speaks of a God whose greatness goes hand in hand with his compassion for those most at risk in life. We have a God who's compact, like a great God, an awesome God, whose compassion towards those that are on the outskirts is greater than we can imagine. And if we doubt that at all from, from the Psalms, then all we have to do is look to Jesus and we see his life and we see, man, that dude, if, if he is high and lifted up, if he was God in the Trinity during creation, and he comes to earth and look who he goes to, those who are outcasts, those who are broken, those who are sick, those who are lame, that is our God. Another comment on the Psalms from Derek Kidner. A short run of Psalms used at the early Passover begins here and is therefore commonly known as the Egyptian Hillel. Hillel means praise. Only the second of them, 114, speaks directly of the Exodus, but the theme of raising the downtrodden and the note of corporate praise, personal thanksgiving, world vision, and festal procession make it an appropriate series to mark the salvation which began in Egypt and will spread to the nations. This isn't just something that happened thousands of years ago. That, that those people should celebrate. This is the story that God continues to write as He redeems and saves those who were lost, those who were in bondage, those who were dead, and gives them life. And so this morning, like, God, would you open our eyes? Would you give us vision to see who you are, that you are doing this? And we don't have to, we, we get to look at your word to see it, but we also get to look left and right and see how God is saving, how He is redeeming. I pray that our time in the Word this morning will lead us to praise. May we praise our exalted Lord because God, the highest God, has remembered and acted to save us, the lowest and most destitute, giving us life where there was only death. Will you pray with me? Because we, we need the Spirit this morning, the Spirit to open our eyes to His Word, to apply it to our hearts, to give us the gift of faith and belief that we would rejoice. God, you are kind. You are loving. You're compassionate, holy, awesome, creator. Now we could spend the rest of our day simply stating the, the different aspects of who you are. And Lord, we can know those in our head and they could be disconnected from our heart. But Lord, by your Spirit, I pray that you would connect the fullness of our being today. That even, even the physical singing and standing would be connected to a heart and, an, and, and a desire and an affection that would be connected to a, a belief and a will and a strength that would um, be serving you. God, we pray for the miracle of
belief, the miracle of faith today. We pray that we would see the gift of grace once again, Lord, and our eyes would be opened and our hearts would be stirred and we would be stirred all the way to action that we would go, that we would participate in your redeeming work. That the spirit that's within us would have dominion over our lives and would move us to go to the world and, and share the good news of Christ, to be your hands and feet, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning. Even as we uh, look at the Psalms, we look at uh, the Old Testament story, we look at the New Testament that gives us the, the fullness of the story, what it was pointing to. So, Lord, we pray for clarity. We pray for faith. We pray for joy today, that we would praise the Lord. We ask all this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a couple literary pieces. I know some of you like this, some of you don't, and that's okay. What, I, this isn't part of the notes. We're here because God has called us here. Some of the things are really going to connect with us, and some of them aren't, and that's okay. Like, we get to do this together, which is really beautiful. We get to sing, sing in ways that maybe we would prefer a different way. And we get to worship in ways that maybe we would prefer a different way. And yet, this is where God has put us, and it is good. And so, even just thinking like, okay, here comes some poetry again, or here comes that, I hope he doesn't write on the window like he did that one time. Um, but we have all of these things before us, and we get to dive into them. We get to look at it from a literary aspect. We look at it from uh, an audience aspect. Who is receiving this? Who is hearing this? Right? And we get to remember those things. So even if that doesn't necessarily excite you and get you really pumped up, that's okay. Kids, I know I didn't write out the, um, the notes for you this morning, but I would call you like, hey, press in. Hear this good news. And then and even the parts where you don't, you don't know. We still have the clipboards. You can still write down some notes and, and say, man, I need to go back and look this up. I need to think about that. So structure-wise, the Psalm 113 has uh, kind of three stanzas, three different thoughts. So one through three really set us up with this praise of the Lord. Who is the Lord that we are praising? He repeats it over and over. He or she, we don't know who, who wrote it. But they repeat over and over, praise the Lord. Four through six, talk about who God is, where is He, and how He's high above us. How He's lifted up, how He's above the heavens and above the earth, and how um, he, he looks far down. And we kind of see the distance between a holy God and an unholy people like us. And then in verses seven through nine, you get this beautiful picture of a, a woman in the Bible, her name is Hannah. A song that she sings when God graces her with the gift of life. And the psalmist looks back and he tells that story again, and it's beautiful. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. He's not just repeating himself, he doesn't have a, he or she doesn't have a stutter. They're they're saying these things, repeating, praise the Lord, three times for emphasis. If, if you remember, we've looked at that a couple different times in Scripture, where particularly the Hebrew people would write things in three times repeating it to really give it emphasis, to say, hey, this is what we're trying to say. 
praise the Lord. But even in that, the praise the Lord, O servants of the Lord. So the psalmist is putting us in our rightful place. We pray a prayer of confession because we are recognizing we have a holy God. A God who is other, a God who is higher than us. We, we do that because it's outlined for us in Scripture. It is the story that's being told every time we open God's Word. God is other, and we are below Him, the servants of the Lord. He's Lord and Master. We are the servants. Now, what we're going to find is that we're joyful servants. We're not oppressed servants. We're not servants who are, are beaten down or overlaid with too much burden, but we are servants who joyfully serve our Master. But we have to remember, that is who we are. In a world, in a culture that is trying to use their own definition of who God is, we acknowledge that we don't get to define God. We don't even get to define what is good. God has given us what is good because He gives us Himself. And when He says that He is God, He is Creator, we are His people, we are His creation, we, we're acknowledging that and we're saying, man, God, that's true. It's true. So you get to tell me who I am. Not the other way around. And yet, so much of culture is trying to figure out how we can be happy and then using our definitions of happiness and security and pleasure and saying, well, God has to give me that. And yet what we find for some of you who have walked with Christ for a long time is you find, man, that's that satisfaction that I get is when I rightly acknowledge Him as Creator and me as created and find my satisfaction in Him rather than telling Him how He should satisfy me. And so the psalmist orients us in that. Praise the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord. That's us today. Servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. We've talked about this idea of Yahweh. The Almighty God who has revealed Himself personally to a people. We lose sight of that. I lose sight of that. This week I have lost sight of the fact that the holy and righteous and powerful God of the universe has revealed Himself to me. He has given me His name and called me by name. It doesn't get any more intimate than that. It doesn't get any more more personal than that. The God of the universe knows you. And the psalmist is saying, praise the name of the Lord, the one who knows me and I know him. And then verses 2 and 3, you get a chiasm. Chiasm is a big word for like a type of poetry, a different type of writing. And usually it'll have one statement, and then we'll call that statement A, and then it'll have another statement, statement B, and then it repeats B, and then it goes back to A. And if you, uh, it's called a chiasm because that's actually the, the Hebrew letter chi. So, and, and so like chiasm is an X, and so you kind of see how it goes. Okay? But we don't, we don't necessarily need to know the literary structure, although it's beautiful, and it's even more beautiful if we learn to read Hebrew. So I would call you, if that's something you're interested in, we can do it together, and it will be a beast, but we can do it together. But the reality is we can even see it in English. 
Look at two and three with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So if that's the first one, we're going to look for where it's repeated. Oh, it's repeated on the fourth line of that. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Praise and blessing are the same, same call, right? So blessed be the name of the Lord. The second statement, from this time forth and forevermore. And then he repeats that from the rising of the sun to its setting. So what's he trying to say in this beautiful poetic language? He's saying that, listen, for eternity, eternity past and eternity present and eternity future, all of time is devoted to the praise of the Lord. This statement from the rising of the sun to the going down of of the, of the same isn't necessarily saying, hey, only during the daytime. No, they, they acknowledge that like that, that was the time when you were aware, when you were awake, when you were working. That was all of time. So we're called to continually participate in the praise of the Lord. From now until eternity, from this time forth and forevermore. Here's the beauty in that. It doesn't get old. It really doesn't. Like if you think about the fact, maybe some of you have been doing this for for decades. And you look back and you remember, man, God, you saved me. You called me out of darkness into your glorious light. I was dead and you gave me life. That does not get old. If it does, it's our our fault. It's not the, the beauty of the truth. It just means that we're not seeing it rightly or not beholding it. But when we see it rightly, our hearts are stirred and we remember the joy of our salvation. That God, the holy God, would save us. So that's what the psalmist is calling us to. Derek Kidner again says it this way, In these calls to praise, there is more than mere repetition. There is point in specifying the Lord's servants and His name. Since worship to be acceptable must be more than flattery and more than guesswork, it is a loving homage of the committed to the revealed. The committed is us. The revealed is Him. He has given Himself to us and calls us to delight in Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, to praise Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verses 4-6. through I want you to see the height of God's station. Like how high and above He is. It says in verse 4, The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? In this short three verses, we see the, the distance, the chasm between a holy God and an unholy people between a creator God and his created people. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. We we talked about it last week with the idea that uh, growing up, Jesus was my homeboy, and I had to recognize that God is king. Right? But he's not just king like as far as earthly king, which is already a big chasm between you and you and him, and between me and him. But he's king over everything. He is high and lifted up. He is above all nations. He's not just king of one nation. He's king of the whole world. Which is pretty, a pretty big deal for the psalmist to say that. Because that, just, that means that not only 
is he talking about the people of God? He's talking about all nations. Not just Israel, not just the Hebrew people, but all nations God is king of. Wait a second. That doesn't jive with what we know. It doesn't jive with the fact that, no, God actually called the Hebrew people and said, I'm going to set you apart and you're going to be a particular people. You'll be my people and I will be your God. Well, How do we reconcile that idea then? How is the psalmist coming up with this, this theory that God is not just God over his people, but he's God over all nations? Right here in Psalm 113, we have the idea that one day, all nations will come under his kingship and rule. Not just Israel, not just that particular people, but even the Gentiles, even the ones who are outside of God's uh, call right now are going to be called to himself. And you and I look back and we see, okay, Jesus came. He came and he, and he came for all those who would be called, Gentile and Jew. If we've learned anything in Romans, that's, that's how the, Paul has defined all people. You're either Gentile or you're a Jew. And he's saying, God has come for everyone. God has come to redeem by his Son anyone who by faith would take hold of him. That is the God that we have. And Psalm 113 is pointing to that. He's high above all nations. There's no nation outside of his rule and his reign. And his glory above the heavens... We can't imagine anything more glorious than the heavens. And even that, we're using a lot of imagination, a lot of liberty to try to figure out what does that look like. I know it's going to be awesome. I know it's going to be glorious. I imagine a lot of lights, some singing, most of it beautiful. Like I can imagine all of those things, right? But even that is me just guessing at the most beautiful and awesome thing I can imagine. And this says... That God is high above the heavens. He's more beautiful than you can imagine. He's greater. And then what does he do? What is this God that is high above the heavens, high above the nations? He's, he's seated on high. He rules and he reigns. He is the Lord our God. What does he do? Verse 6, he looks far down. He looks far down. This God who is over everything, above all things, looks down and he sees us way down here. He sees us. He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. This idea that we have a God who is is more holy, more worthy, more exalted, more glorious than we can imagine. If we, don't, if we don't put him in his rightful place, we don't understand how far down he looks. If we think that oh, he's, he's actually okay, it's, it's fine, my sin has been covered, it's not a big deal, he's okay with, he understands that I lie sometimes to my brothers and sisters, like, would he really expect me to tell them the truth? He's okay with um, me not giving him all of me, whether that's my time, my talent, or my treasure. And he understands that, that I'm, 
it's okay. I mean, I have to have something to live on. I have to be able to, to get away. I have to be able to escape and relax for a little while. And yet the reality is that a holy and righteous and other than God demands all of us. He demands all of us. And He looks down and He sees us. This is the Lord of all. Spurgeon says it this way when he's talking about in His glory above the heavens. He says, higher than the loftiest part of creation. The clouds are the dust of His feet. And sun, moon, and stars twinkle far below His throne. Even the heaven of heavens cannot contain Him. His glory cannot be set forth by the whole visible universe, nor even by the solemn pomp of angelic armies. It is above all conception and imagination, for He is God, infinite. Let us above all adore Him who is above all. Good old Spurge, man. He's talking about poetry with poetry. I love it. Like He's talking about Psalm 113, which is this beautiful gift of language to us, and He says this, let us above all adore Him who is above all. That's fun, man. T- write that one down. Think about that one. Even as you, as you look at Psalm 113 this week and realize the, the beauty of a God creator who looks down and sees us, remember that our hope is that we would adore Him above all who is above all. He's exalted. He looks far down. You see, until we understand the height And holiness of God, the height above, how far above us He is, how much holier He is, we will not comprehend the extravagance of His grace or the depth of His condescension. We talk about it sometimes, probably not as often as as I'd like, but the idea of of, um, the the diagram, right, where we have the, the growing understanding of God's holiness the growing depth of our depravity. Like even the good things that we do, that most of the time they're done for selfish reasons. And so we have this, this huge um, sideways V. I, don't, I lost what it's called right there. Anyways, an angle. Sideways V. Just imagine a sideways V. Right? And that top, that top line is just like the reality of who God is. He's not getting holier, but our understanding of Him is increasing. We're like, man, God, You're so far above even the greatest thing that I can imagine, the highest heavens that I could imagine. It says You're above it. And God, I'm, I'm so much worse than I think that I am. Like even, even the, the good things that I do are the self-righteous pride that Matt led us to confess this morning. And as we look, like the chasm that's, that's actually created in those two things, God looks down from the highest highs far below to see us. But if we elevate ourselves or we diminish who He is, we actually shrink that distance. But Psalm 113 says He looks far down from the heavens, on the heavens and the earth. Okay, we've been set up. We've been set up. We see that there's this chasm that's between us and God. What is God going to do about it? Well, we're given the story of Hannah. And maybe you know the story of Hannah, and maybe you don't. And so I just I want to refresh us. This idea in verses 7 through 9, we see that 
this high and exalted God not only looks far down, but He actually reaches far down. He comes down. 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 tell the story of Hannah. And it's beautiful, and I'm, I'm just going to give us the, the cliff notes of it today. But I would encourage you this week, go back and read it. Go back and read God's compassion towards this woman. Because what we have is we have Hannah, who is the husband of Elkanah. And Elkanah goes yearly to worship God in Shiloh. And he brings with him his offerings and his sacrifices, and he actually has two wives, which is socially acceptable in that day. Not so much these days, but that's okay. Like, but don't, don't let that bog you down, okay? He has two wives, Paniah, who's given him children, and Hannah, who's barren. There's a couple stories in the Bible about barren women. And I, I don't think that we understand the depth culturally of like the, how that would ostracize and, and push aside someone in that culture. But to be barren was to mean that you couldn't do the thing that, that God had called you to do, be fruitful and multiply. Right? The first, one of the first calls that we see in Genesis is, is to be fruitful and multiply. And so this woman, Hannah, wrestles with it. Wrestles with it. And her husband, lovingly, wrestles with it with her. And so they go to, to the priests and they would offer sacrifice, worshiping God, Yahweh, the one who had given himself to his people. But in that day, it was uh, a thought that if you, were, um, if you were barren, you were actually cursed. The Anchor Yale Bible Commentary says the importance of large families in ancient Israel encouraged the belief that a barren wife was cursed by God. Imagine, you are supposed to be God's people and you feel like you're cursed by God. You've been, you've been pushed out, you've been set aside, you've been forgotten. So Hannah goes and she prays. She takes this, this reality that she's experiencing and she brings it to God and she says, God, and look at how she prays. Verse 11 of Samuel 1, 1 Samuel 1, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That's pretty intense. Begging God for the one thing that she wants, the one thing that she feels would give her satisfaction and fulfillment. And she says, listen, if you will give it to me, I will give it back. I think we'll have some fun in community group this week as we think about what God has given to us that, it, that we don't give back. And then, even more fun, will be what has God given to us that we have given back, that we do give back, that we gladly and joyfully give back. But in this moment, Hannah cries out to God. Now, as you read it, you'll see that this happens over and over. She goes over and over 
yearly, annually, to, to the priests. And Elkanah gives both Paniah and Hannah sacrifice to, to give to God, but to Hannah, he actually gives a double portion because he loves her. And he says, hey, will you offer this to your God, to our God? And so she goes and she continually does this. Like, for some of us, we pray once and we get tired and we're like, oh, God, I don't know where you are. She's going and she's continually begging God, like, God, this is a thing. But I trust you. Because she says, oh, Lord. She has that right understanding of he is master and I'm servant. He is creator and I'm the created. And so she serves him even with her prayers. Here's the beautiful thing. God hears her. She's going, and, and this is after several years, and she's praying, and she's, she's at the, um, where they were offering the sacrifice, and Eli is there. And it's Eli's sons that are normally taking the sacrifices, but for some reason, Eli is there this time at Shiloh. And he's the priest. And he hears her praying, and he thinks she's drunk. Is that good news for us? Like, we can get things wrong. <laughs> we, can, we can really miss the point sometimes. And God will still do what only God could do. I'm so thankful for that piece of the story. <laughs> but she's praying, and he, he thinks she's drunk. And she, she's, he tells her to go away. And she goes, but, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Listen, she knows the perception of unworthiness. She's, she's experiencing some of that within herself, but she's also being told that by culture, and so she feels forgotten. She feels cast out. Some of you today feel forgotten. Like you feel like, God, I've been, I've been crying out, where are you? And you have forgotten me. These other, other people around me, they're getting these good things. And yet, I'm asking for simple stuff, God. Like the thing that you've created me to do, I can't do. And I just want to do that. Some of you kids, like you're, you feel forgotten. You feel lost. You know, in my home, we have a lot of kids, and so sometimes one of them will feel forgotten, and actually sometimes they do, like we forget them in the car. It's just crazy. But the reality is that we remember them, and the better picture is that I'm not God. God does remember. God knows you. He's called you by name, and he's given you his name. That's the personal God that we serve. And so today, I pray that you would, you would both hear that it's okay to feel forgotten and be given the remedy. Like, what, is, what do I do with that? I take it to God. I go like Hannah over and over and say, God, here I am. And then we see what God does. Verse 19 is really interesting because of the way that... Uh, sorry, verse 17. She, she gets this from Eli. Eli the priest says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Eli prays with her, blesses her in the name of the Lord, that she would receive what she's asking from God. 
And in verse 19, it says that the Lord remembered her. The one that she thought had forgotten about her. The one that she had cried to and said, remember me. Don't forget me. It says the Lord remembered her and in his remembering, he gave her a son. He put life in what was dead. In a dead womb, he planted life. The kindness of God, and, and that, that has so many things that work itself out, so many tendrils of life, where that becomes a, an increasingly beautiful reality that God would do what only He can do. You see, Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8, is a quote from 1 Samuel 2 8. Hannah has this long song. In verse 2, because God had remembered her, she shouts praise, she sings praise, and it's beautiful. Some of it is actually uh, looks like Mary adapts the same song. Like Mary, as she's remembering the gift of Jesus in her womb, she sings Hannah's song. Like this has been given to us, and not just for women who are, are barren and become pregnant, but for us who are dead, and at the end of ourselves and crying out to God, we get to say the same prayers of praise because he has saved and he has given life where there was only death. She begins with, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And then in verse 8, she says this, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Now, Psalm 113, what does that say? Verse 7, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. The psalmist is is saying, listen, that same dead thing that is now alive that Hannah rejoiced in, you and I rejoice in. We rejoice that God gives life. He makes He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Now, the rest of Hannah's story, right? God was faithful to her. And and not faithful because he had to be, not faithful because um, there was some transaction where he had to do what he did. He, He is gracious and kind to her and gives her the desire of her heart. And what does she do? She returns that desire. The book that we're reading out of for Hannah's story is called Samuel because her son is Samuel and she gives him to the priest and he grows up to be a priest. He lives in the house of God. Some other beautiful stories about Samuel that I would encourage you to read this week. Like You just see the way that these dominoes fall as God is working out his plan of redemption and salvation for not just individuals, not just people who, who actually have physical death inside of them and need physical life given to them. But it's a greater story of what He is doing in the spiritual, in the eternal, more so than the temporal. This physical restoration that God does in Hannah is both the miracle and the image, the type of the miraculous spiritual redemption that you and I have today. When you think about the miracles of the Bible, you think about miracles of salvation and rescue, right? The Israelites being led out of Egypt. 
David being rescued from Saul as he's hunting him. Daniel being saved in the lion's den, like with lions, actual lions, teeth, all of that. They're not in cages. It's not a zoo like you and I think. No, he's being thrown in there to be eaten by those lions, and God saves him. We see those miracles. We see miracles of physical healing. Sarah and Hannah, their wombs are restored. Jesus healing the leper and the blind and the paralytic. And then we see even to the point of raising the dead. Like, that's crazy. God does these miracles. Elijah prays over the widow's son and he comes back to life. Jesus goes into the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth, and he walks out. And the greatest is Jesus himself, who was dead three days, rises again, defeating sin and death in the grave. In each of these examples, the recipient of the gift couldn't fix themselves, except Jesus, but like, that one's a little complicated. We'll see what that means for us. But these, these people were in a place where they could not fix themselves. They were dead. Ephesians, three, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 points us to this reality. We, we are dead. But in each one of these examples, we see the love of God as He enters into our reality and lifts us up from the ash heap, from the dust, from the things that don't matter, to give us a place that matters, to seat us with princes. He, the highest God, the Lord God of creation, ruler of heaven and earth, and us, the lowest, the outcast, the broken, the desperate, the utterly helpless. It's this picture of our spirit. Picture of us spiritually. We were utterly helpless in our sin. We were dead. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of sons of disobedience. He continues on for another two verses to talk about how dead we are. And then in verse 4, right, us, the barren, the sick, the lame, the dead, all with no hope but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Listen, you want to know how great His love is? You've got to know the height of God above to the depth of us below and how far He looked down. If there's anything that we want to see today, it's the length of God's love for us. How far would He go to save and rescue because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not measurable. Sometimes we think measurable riches of His grace. Like maybe one day we're going to figure it out. No, it says the immeasurable. You cannot measure it. It's so big, so great, so wonderful. The immeasurable riches of His grace and love for us. Do you sit in that? Is that where we operate out of? I know I didn't this week. Little things came up and I, I forgot about the immeasurable riches of His grace and I responded out of my flesh And yet His grace was sufficient for me even in that moment. 
to call me to repentance. But when we do see that, what can be, what can be taken from us? If I have everything that I need in Christ, the immeasurable riches of His grace, what can you take from me? Nothing. I'm going to live in that place. And there's nothing that you can do that could change that. And that's the ultimate, all-satisfying thing that I have. And yet I forget. And we forget that Christ has come to reconcile us to a holy God. How did He do that? How did He take what was dead and give us life? He took our death for us. Jesus came. Walked a perfect life so that there was no payment that needed to be made for His life. There was no sin that He had that needed to be atoned for. And then He died, which is the payment for sin. So if He was dying and He's paying for sin, whose sin is He paying for? He's paying for those who are in Christ. For those who would, by faith, come to Him and receive the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. Man, God is kind. Man, He's good. He's so good to us. He didn't just look far down from heaven and pass the heavens of the earth. He came He submitted. He humbled Himself. Philippians 2 says that He humbled Himself and became like us. Like that is a condescending God who would come down and be with us. The exalted One humiliated Himself so that we might be exalted in Him. Man, that's good news today. This is the length of the love of God. This is how far He goes. Paul continues in Ephesians 3, like he just can't help himself. He's kind of getting excited like I am right now. And in Ephesians 3, at the end of it, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's praying for the people. And and we're praying this for us, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth? What is the length? What is the height? What is the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hannah experienced that fullness. She she experienced a God who loved her, who who came and and looked and saw her, the dust, the the pile of ash heap, the things that are are refuse in the eyes of the world. And And God came and met her in that place and lifted her up to sit with princes. Like that's the exaltation that we're talking about. God humiliating Himself to exalt us. Because by exalting us, by exalting those who are in Christ, He's actually exalting Himself. He's saying, I am a God who saves. Despite you, despite me, God saves. What a gracious and kind and powerful God to do that. And so, the psalmist Reply is understanding that God still heals and restores in the physical and the circumstantial, but He also has done this eternal work that is not temporal. It doesn't end when our bodies end. It's a forever life that He's given us. Psalmist begins, praise the Lord. 
How does he end? Praise the Lord. I pray that that would be both our beginning as we, as we see and savor Christ and we, we experience the joy of salvation. Would be a, our beginning would be praise the Lord and that our end would be praise the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, you've given us so much beauty in your word. So many ways to see how you save so many ways to see how you give life and bring life to the dead. God, whether it was your provision in a womb thousands of years before Christ, or whether it was your provision in a womb with a young girl named Mary, where you would give yourself to us, Lord, God, you have given life. Lord, we are dead. We were dead in our sins. We could not fix ourselves. Dead people stay dead, and yet you came and you gave life by giving us your son. Hannah had a son, and we have the son today. Lord, would we rejoice in that? God, and, and knowing that even... Even that gift, Lord, causes a response of my life is not my own. God, you have given yourself, you have given your son for me. I give you my life and my everything in return, Lord. Would you stir that in our hearts today? May we be a people of joy, a people of praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And give us the fullness of that. I thank you that... Um, while you are immeasurable and your grace towards us is immeasurable and your kindness is immeasurable, I pray that we would see it more and more. God, that we would desire to know it more and more. That we would never reach the ends of you, but we would long to go as far as we can go with our knowledge and understanding of the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of the love of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your promises today. God, we praise you. You are worthy. You are holy. You are beautiful. You are so compassionate and loving and kind. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.